0: It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to so the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 60. Before we get started, I would like to thank Alan from Massachusetts and James from Pennsylvania for their donations this week. It is always greatly appreciated. And we are here now at the end of our episodes discussing the events of 1915. I held this topic until the end of the year because I think it fits quite well and brings us to what I think I might call the end of the beginning of the war. I call it the end of the beginning because it sees the fall of one of the countries that started it all, Serbia. Serbia had held out far longer than most would have expected after the war started, but now it was time for the small Balkan country to feel the full weight of Germany, Austria, and the new entry to the war, Bulgaria, which would bring an end to Serbian resistance. We will also be spending some time looking at the only real effort by France and Britain to directly help Serbia when they landed troops at the Greek port of Salonika. We will look at why the Allies ended up landing the troops at Salonika, what they did when they got there, and how they ended up sticking around until the end of the war, even though they had already failed at their one job, which was to help Serbia. Bulgaria had entered the war for several reasons. The first was simply that they did not like Serbia, after the tiny country had defeated them in the Second Balkan War just three years earlier in 1912. This dislike made the leaders of Bulgaria concerned about their country's position in the Balkans should Serbia be on the winning side even if Bulgaria was on the same side. It was inevitable that if Serbia was on the winning side, the small country would absorb hefty chunks of Austria-Hungary, while the expansion opportunities for Bulgaria would be greatly limited. The possibilities for expansion was the second big reason that Bulgaria made the decision that she did. When Bulgaria started exploring the going price for a neutral country with an army of over half a million, she found the going price quite good especially if the buyers were Germany and Austria-Hungary. They could give Bulgaria everything that she wanted, which was mostly stuff taken from it during the Second Balkan War, so most of Macedonia. To go along with large pieces of Macedonia, Bulgaria would also be given several pieces of Serbia as well. The Allies, try as they might to bring in Bulgaria on their side, just simply couldn't match this offer. They were allied with Serbia and could not promise Serbian territory to Bulgaria. One final piece of the Bulgarian entry was just the general situation in 1915. Throughout the last 41 episodes, we've been talking about nothing but victories for Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey. By late summer, the biggest threat to Bulgaria, Russia, had just got beat down on the eastern front and looked to be in a shattered mess. The one attempt by Britain and France to get involved in the region was Gallipoli, and in September, the men of the British, Anzac, and French divisions were stuck on their beaches, still. The Italian campaign was just a straight disaster. When looking at all three of these factors, the hatred of Serbia, the rewards promised to them, and the Allied situation in 1915, it seems the only question to ask was when Bulgaria would enter the war, and the answer to that question was September 6th, 1915. After entering the war, the conversation with the German High Command quickly came around to what should be done about the Serbian problem. The Serbian problem could be defined as, why does Serbia exist? To which the unanimous answer among Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Bulgaria was, we should make it not exist. And that is what they would do. But before they could do that, something else should have happened when Bulgaria entered the war, and that something else involved Greece. Greece was supposed to enter the war against Bulgaria if Bulgaria declared war on Serbia. This was from a treaty between Serbia and Greece that predated the First World War and was signed after the Second Balkan War in 1912. When the time came for Greece to make her move, the Greek Prime Minister, Venezuelos, and I'm sorry but I'm not even going to try to pronounce his first name, wanted 150,000 troops to be landed in Greece before he would declare war. These were allied troops, either British or French, he didn't care where they came from. But Venezuelos just basically wanted warm bodies. Once the troops were in Greece, then and only then would he try to pull Greece into the war. The key word there is try. He still would not guarantee that Greece would enter the war. The French readily agreed to contribute troops to the cause, although they wanted the British to bear most of the burden, pointing to their primary role on the Western Front as the reason. If the British would contribute any troops was far from certain. In London, there was disagreement among the government, and especially between Kitchener and David Lloyd George. Kitchener was against the entire campaign. His sticking point was the fact that there was not a guarantee that Greece would enter the war, just this kinda, sorta, maybe promise from a person who couldn't officially declare war anyway. But even over Kitchener's objection, British troops were going to Salonika, although it was agreed with the French that the British troops would be used strictly to defend the port, they would not be going on any Balkan adventures. The fact that David Lloyd George would eventually win the argument is as good of an indication as any of Kitchener's fading influence in London. There was one little problem with landing British and French troops in Greece. The country was still technically neutral. That means that they could not let the troops land without declaring one way or the other in the war. The Greek government would protest the sending of troops and protest it loudly, but while they were protesting, they were also preparing for the arrival of the troops at the port. Now, this whole situation would have been a lot less complicated if Greece just entered the war, but it was only when the troops were ready to land that the kinda sorta maybe promised to enter the war became a maybe kinda nope, no way, absolutely not. This change was driven by King Constantine, who declared that Greece would stay neutral. The king believed that Greece would be better off to stay out of the war for now. Oh, and he was also married to the Kaiser's sister, so that may have swayed him one way. The Prime Minister, Venezuelos, still strongly disagreed with this decision, and the differences became so irreconcilable between the King and the Prime Minister, that on October 5th, Venezuelos was dismissed from his position as Prime Minister. Venezuelos does not completely leave the histories, though, and he will be back in 1917, when he would lead a new Allied-recognized government after the abdication of the King of Greece, but for now, and for the duration of 1915 and 1916, Greece would stay neutral. But they did allow the British and French to use the port of Salonika as long as they needed it. So this is technically against the rules. Like, as a neutral country, you can't just let belligerents have armies in your country and not declare either one way or the other in the war but I'm pretty sure Germany wouldn't have cared that much. As long as another country didn't enter the war against them, they probably would only sort of complain and then just go about their day. Salonika is a Greek port on the Aegean in Macedonia. Its current name is Thessaloniki, and it's currently the second largest city in Greece. It had been taken by Greece during the First Balkan War, where it and all of Macedonia was taken from the Ottoman Empire. I will be using the name Salonika for the rest of this episode, since it is the name most used in histories of the war. Now, there was a serious problem with using the port of Salonika in an effort to assist Serbia. This problem was that there was only one rail line that led into Serbia from Salonika. The French knew that this was the case, and, but there was just not a, really a better option. With so little rail capacity in the area, the troops moving from Salonika to the Greek border with Serbia would have to walk all of the 200 miles, which could not have been a fun prospect. The troops that would land would be put under the command of General Maurice Sorail. Sorail? I don't know if that's how you say it. The troops that would land at Salonika would be put under the command of General Maurice Sorail. Sorail had been an co- army commander when the war started but Joffre had relieved him of his command in summer 1915. Joffre gave Sarai the task of commanding the troops at Salonika, not as some reward, but instead to just get rid of him, and in that regard, Joffre was quite successful. The reason he wanted Sarai gone was because Sarai was openly socialist and a Freemason, which conflicted with Joffre's belief and political situation. The fact that a self-declared socialist was able to continue to rise so high in the French army, a body dominated by republicans and monarchists, is somewhat impressive. Sarai would be given the task of commanding the French troops at Salonika, and there were divisions en route in September, one of which was pulled out of Gallipoli for the task. With the first set of landings, there were 50,000 troops that would go ashore and more troops that would move in over the next several months. As more and more troops moved into Salonika, it became a health nightmare. This was the same story that we talked about Gallipoli th- earlier this year, and in the Middle East just a few weeks ago. Tropical diseases ran rampant through the army camps, with malaria and dysentery topping the lists. There were even situations where entire units were down with various sicknesses that afflicted all of the men. Before we move into the Serbian campaign, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Salonika. The entire Salonika campaign, from its inception until almost the end of the war, gets very little love from historians. And before the end of this episode, I hope you understand why. But here is John Keegan's take on the effect of the troops at Salonika from his book, The First World War. Quote, Within an area of 200 square miles, the French encamped three and the British five divisions, and together created an enormous stockpile of stores and more material. Strategically, their presence exerted no pressure at all on either the Bulgarians or the Germans, who maintained a scratch force on the frontier. It drew no enemy away from the Western Front, brought no aid to the Russians, and posed no threat to the Turks." End quote. As you can tell, John Keegan is not very high on the Salonika campaign. The entire reason the troops were at Salonika was to help Serbia. By my calculations, it's been roughly 477 days since episode 12, when we last talked in any real depth about Serbia's situation. After the first few months of the war and the failed Austro-Hungarian offensives, the Serbian front had quieted down, while Conrad's focus was elsewhere. Unfortunately for the Serbs, they were never able to capitalize on this lack of focus, and they were forced to just sit on the defensive inside their borders and just wait for events to move forward elsewhere. When the war came back to Serbia, after being surrounded and cut off for so long, their only hope was from the outside. The Serbian army was low on every conceivable resource—bullets, shells, clothes, food— and the only thing that was in shorter supply was reserves— The eleven divisions that made up the Serbian army were now so riddled with disease after spending over a year in the field that their only hope was a strong push out of Salonika that would never come. After the crushing Russian defeats of the summer of 1915 and the fragile stalemate on the Italian front, the leaders of Austria-Hungary could again shift their eyes back to the small country that had played such a big role in getting this whole thing started. The fact that Bulgaria entered the war was just icing on the cake. This wasn't 1914, though, and the Austrians were not able to, or really more like they were not allowed to, go into Serbia without German support. In a somewhat surprising change, considering how much he had fought German reinforcements going to Austria so far, Falkenhayn provided that support in the form of the 11th Army. General Mackensen was put in charge of the German and Austrian forces that were assigned to capture Serbia and his plan for the attack was to attack on as wide a front as possible to spread out the Serbian forces. He would also coordinate his attack with a Bulgarian attack of 200,000 men, bringing their combined total to over 500,000. The Bulgarian attack was about more than just numbers, though. Since the start of the war, nearly the entire Serbian army had been concentrated on the northern and eastern borders of the country to defend against Austria. When some of the forces were moved south, they found a border that had no prepared defensive lines and they had no time to create them. The campaign was really a foregone conclusion. The Serbians could have had the greatest army in the world at this point in the war, and they still would have been forced out by sheer weight of numbers. The only question now was how long the Serbians could hold out. The final countdown for Serbia would begin on October 5th, as the bombardment began. The next day, the attack was launched across the Danube and Drina rivers, and unlike the first month of the war, when the Serbian forces had held the line at the rivers, this time there was no stopping the onslaught. Both of the rivers were decisively breached in under a day, and just two days later, on October 9th, Belgrade was captured. This was not a huge deal, Belgrade was completely indefensible, because it was right by the Austrian border, and after the initial advance, the Serbians were actually able to slow down the attackers a bit. But the retreat, once it got started, would never truly end. They were just never able to get to a new position and fully consolidate it, especially on the ninth, when the Bulgarians began their attack. They attacked from the east and drove towards the cities of Nis and Skopje. During this time, the biggest problem for the Serbians had nothing to do with the territory they were losing, but instead the fact that the Bulgarians were advancing so fast that there was a good chance that they would cut off the northern Serbian groups. The northern forces started retreating faster to keep pace with those in the south, and the call went out to the British and French that if they were going to do something with those forces at Salonika, it had to be big and it had to happen like right now. Not only did this attack need to be launched soon for Serbia's sake, but also because about half of the Bulgarian army was attacking directly towards the rail line running from the port to the Serbian border. Sarai agreed to attack, but did not agree with the Serbians on where he should attack to. Serbia wanted him to attack towards Nis, which was about a 150 miles from Salonika. Sarail just straight up refused to entertain this idea, believing that it was too far into Serbian territory. Sarai was concerned that his troops would be cut off in Serbia without access to their supply lines. Next, the Serbians suggested that he attack towards Skopje which was about half the distance at 75 miles. But again, Sarai thought this would be an unwise move. Sarai would summarize his reason for refusal by saying simply that, quote, one cannot do something with nothing. The timer on Serbia was running out during all of these discussions, and word of Sarai's decisions had made their way back to France, and October the 15th, he was forced to move French troops into Serbia, even if he didn't want to. Unfortunately, by this time it was simply too late, and the Bulgarians had been able to get between the French advance and the Serbian retreat. Sarai would leave his forces in Serbia for over a month, but eventually it became apparent that the troops were not serving any purpose, and on November the 23rd, the order was given to retreat. While the French were deciding whether or not to help, the Serbians continued to be in full retreat throughout their country. The Germans, Austrians, and Bulgarians were all trying to cut off their retreat to complete the destruction of the Serbian army, but they were just never able to get it done. The fact that the Serbians were able to avoid encirclement is even more surprising when you consider the fact that they had tens of thousands of civilians and Austrian prisoners of war with them. They were almost caught in Kosovo, but after slipping away, they made their way into Montenegro. The retreat then continued through Montenegro and into Albania, and from there to the Adriatic Sea. The hope was that on the Adriatic they could be supplied from the sea by their allies, but the road through Albania was hard, and somewhere around 50,000 soldiers and civilians were lost in the journey over the mountains. Most of these deaths were due to disease, starvation, and exposure to the cold. The Serbian president, Nikola Pazic, was very disappointed in his allies and made it very well known that he blamed their indecisiveness for the fall of his country. The fact that the French troops under Sarai had been unable to make a decisive move to save Serbia was a contributing factor to the fall of the French government that was discussed in episode 54. The long-term goal of reaching the coast was that they could be evacuated by the Royal Navy, and the Italian Navy, if possible, but it would take several months all the way until February 1916, before all of the Serbians were on the Greek island of Corfu. 150,000 evacuees reached the island, but many would die after reaching it, never able to fully recover from the hardships on the mainland. Even with all of these losses, the Serbian army would recuperate on the Greek island, and it would eventually move to Salonika to assist the British and French forces there. In fact, Serbia would never officially surrender and would play a role in the last months of the war, when the forces in Salonika, finally fulfilling their role, advanced into the Balkans. The advance into the Balkans at the end of the war was almost three years in the future, and for now, there was some debate about whether or not the troops should stay at Salonika. This was another one of those topics that was discussed at that all-important meeting between all of the allies at Chantilly. The topic of Serbia was discussed on December 4th, the positions going into the meeting were that the British wanted to leave, and the French wanted to stay in Salonika. David Lloyd George was one of the few British representatives at the conference who wanted to stay. His reasoning was that a breakthrough into the Balkans could not be more difficult than in France, so why not send troops there? Even with George's support, it became apparent that the British simply would not budge on leaving, and so the first day ended with the French also agreeing to move the troops out of Salonika. While this was the agreement on the 4th of December, the next day, the French Council of Ministers just decided that they were not okay with this being the decision. They put their heads together and formulated an argument that would get the British to change their minds. A critical piece in the argument came from the Russians. At the meeting on the 6th, the British were faced with a united front from both France and Russia. Joffre had even went so far as to write up a specific plan of action and circulated copies to the French and Russian representatives. The Russians started the meeting with an impassioned speech emphasizing the importance of tying up any possible Austrian and German troops. After the Russian delegates had completed their part, Joffre took the stage. Part of his reasoning for staying at Salonika was put into the official minutes of the meeting like this. The decision of the Allies to abandon Salonica will worsen the strategic situation in the present and the future. It will complicate the political situation on the Turkish front and compel the Romanians to submit to the will of our adversaries. Even with all of this pressure, the British still did not agree to stay. On December the ninth, and then again on the eleventh, the British and French met again to discuss the Salonica question, and finally, at the last meeting, the British agreed. The agreement was extremely specific about the role that the British troops would play. They agreed to stay in Salonika and help fortify the port, but they would not advance beyond the current Salonika base. They were strictly there to defend the port. There would be absolutely no Balkan adventures. Even with this agreement, the British clearly stated that they were only agreeing to stay for the near future, and that this would be a point of discussion later. One of the reasons that the British were so adamant about not launching offensives was because they were already preparing for their 1916 offensives in the spring, and did not want to divert any resources from the effort. After the British had made their position clear, the French decided that operations out of Salonika were unfeasible for the time being. The French general staff estimated that to do anything meaningful in the Balkans, they would need more than 600,000 troops, and there just weren't that many available so the troops that were already there would just have to stand down for the opening months of 1916. More troops were sent by the spring of 1916, not the 20 divisions that Sarai wanted, but more troops, including 6 divisions from the Serbian army. The conditions over the summer of 1916 were miserable, not that much different than Gallipoli had been in the summer of 1915. It was hot, there was tons of malaria causing tons of other diseases. Apparently, the British alone had 162,000 cases of malaria over the summer. Even with the reinforcements, there was little chance of any action until they were forced by a future ally, Romania. It was very important to Romania that as many Bulgarian troops be tied down as possible, so the Romanian leader said that they would only enter the war in if an offensive was launched out of Salonika. This request was made in July 1916, but an offensive would not be possible by Sarai until September. When the attack was launched, of course without British assistance, it accomplished nothing. Sporadic fighting would continue on the Greek border for another four months before it was finally called off, but the French never got much past the border. Again, the troops at Salonika would be idle for months before launching another attack in 1917. Again, no real progress was made. However, the failure of the 1917 attack was the catalyst for the forced abdication of King Constantine from the throne of Greece. His son Alexander took his place, but really power was handed over to former Prime Minister Venezuelos. Due to this change, and the reason that it was forced by the British and French, was Venezuelos, when he came to power, brought Greece into the war. The final attacks out of Salonika would be in 1918, and these would come so late in the war that they were able to move into the Balkans and liberate Belgrade in September 1918. We will be back to discuss that campaign here in a few years. So, just to, you know, summarize. By the end of the war, the forces and resources poured into Salonika over three years were not pointless. But in 1915 and 1916 and 19... 19- 1917. they sort of looked like it. They had failed to save Serbia, and with that failure, the tiny Balkan country that had the guts to stand up against Austria-Hungary would find its entire country occupied for three long years of war. And with that, we come to the end of our episodes for this year. I will be taking about a three-week break to prep for the next slate of episodes as we dive headfirst into 1916, and make our first stop at a small French town called Verdun. Maybe you've heard of it. I will be posting a few updates along the way at the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar. And as always, you can contact me by email at historyofthegreatwar at outlook.com. I hope everyone has had a wonderful new year, and I hope you will join me for History of the Great War Series 3, 1916, the year Germany lost the war. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! And this is Carl off his motorcycle. Balsa wood is very different than teak, people confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.